5. And um, it's in, in a section where the picture of Jesus as the slaughtered lamb comes before the throne of God. And uh, the people or the beings around the throne gives praise and so does many people. And then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. May God bless the reading of his word. Actually, I have to tell this story standing. <laughs> Sorry about that. Hello, boys and girls. Nice to see you. Um, well, um, I'm going to tell you a story uh, from when I was about six years old. Anybody six years old? Yeah, at least one. Very good. Well, my name is Bjorn. That's a strange name because I come from Norway. And when I was six years old, I walked sometimes with my father in the forest, in the woods. And I didn't always like it. was, you know, every Sunday my father said, whether it was summer or winter or whatever, he said, we are going out in nature and we are going for a walk. <clears throat> you know, we, we, we kids, we said, nah, we had, sometimes it was raining, sometimes it was cold, we had snow in the winter, and sometimes we went skiing, and sometimes it's all fun. But usually, every time we actually got out there, it was quite nice. This one time I'm telling you about, we, um, it was only my father and I walking, and it was in the spring, so the summer was coming, and it was getting warmer, and we walked into a forest that you don't see much around, much, oh, around here, because you have a kind of untouched nature. So we walked on small paths through between the trees, in the forest and um, there's always lots of things to play with and look at but on this particular day when we turned a little bend there on the path there was a snake a snake and it was the only venomous that means poisonous snake that means if it bites you you can get very very sick it's kind of a dangerous snake. It was lying there just curled up on the path. And the reason why it was lying there was it was a sunny day, and it just likes to lie in the sun and get warmer and warmer and warmer. So when it, but it hurt, it could feel our steps when we came walking on the ground. So it was a, a bit 
people gave attention and do you know what they say a snake when it gets a sort of a little bit afraid or made a bit angry it says like that yeah and that's what this snake did so we said we need to be careful but my father he he wasn't so afraid as i think he should be and so he walked closer to the snake and then the snake lifted his head as if to warn us and said don't come closer i might bite you but my father he was he had big wellies on boots high boots so he went closer and closer i think i thought no 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 this is not very good is it but my father and then he put his foot forward like this towards the snake and the snake he tried to hit him and it hit the boot underneath don't do this at home <laughs> no it's not advisable but i was i had big eyes oh, wow snake and but then the snake suddenly started to move and it just disappeared into the undergrowth into the grass sort of thing and we couldn't see it anymore hmm kind of exciting to be in the forest with my father um, so but we we walked on further into the forest and we came to a a rocky mountain side not a very high mountain but it was it was kind of um, we walked along there and it was we came to a place where there was an opening in them in like a tunnel in the in the in the in the mountain it's a very steep rocky mountainside and some people had put planks across so that nobody could enter into that tunnel but the, it was old and it was rotten and some planks had fallen down and you could actually step inside my father said do you want to go inside there i said i'm not so sure you know because it was dark and wet in there he said no yeah let's try it let's step in so he stepped over some planks into that tunnel and it was not very high my father who was almost as tall as me he had to bend down like this and uh, i was only six years old so i could just stand there and then he said let's let's move inside the tunnel a little bit so we uh, so we walked slowly and as we get further into the tunnel it was darker and darker and darker and we could just feel these very wet walls around us and there was water on the floor and in the end i couldn't see anything because the the tunnel sort of turned a little bit and the, all the light disappeared from behind us what did i do i was a bit scared so i took i went behind my father and i i put my my hands in his pockets like this you know and then i with both my hands i held on to the back pockets of my father and then i just walked like this through the long tunnel and it was pinch black it was really dark but after a while again we turned a little bit again and then we saw some little light there in the front and we walked and it just got brighter and brighter 
and then we came out on the other side. But we didn't come out of the mountain. We were right in the middle of it. When we came at the end of the tunnel, we looked up, and we were at the bottom of this huge um, hole in the ground, this huge cave. I said, how do we get out of here? We couldn't get out of there. We had to go back. Because this mountain was a mountain the way they had done mining. Do you know what mining is? Maybe you don't. But sometimes they can, you can take valuable minerals out of the mountain. And this is what they had done there. So we had this huge hole in the mountain. And we could just look up into the, the sky. So we had to go back. So I grabbed my father's back pockets again. And we walked through the darkness, through the tunnel, and we came out on the other side. Wow. I don't, remember, I don't forget that day. That was quite an exciting day, both the snake and that tunnel. So to go for a walk with that isn't always that boring, is it? Once you get out there. But now, so, it's nice to have parents you trust, right? And it's nice to hold on to somebody's back pocket. There is also something I'd like to say, because when you're a kid, or look at these, these adults, these grown-up people, you know? Do they know everything, and do they always feel they are safe in this life, and they, they are you know, certain about everything? No. Do I feel that I know everything, and that I'm always in control of everything, and I know where I'm going? No. So, sometimes you have to trust in God. And it is like putting our hands in the back pockets of somebody and say, I will trust in God that he will lead me in the right ways. So, think about that when you think about the story about me and my father in the forest. That's my story. Thank you very much. Hello again. Um, I've only been in this church on a Sunday before. <laughs> um, about 18 months ago, we met with the elders and we had a, a session about leadership. That was a good time up in the room upstairs. Thank you very much. <clears throat> so it's nice to meet you as a church. Thank you for the invitation. And um, I hope I can do justice to the Word of God, and I pray that uh, what we say here will glorify His name. Um, I'd like to just uh, reflect on the week that passed. Um, it's been a sad week in the world. And um, the events in Barcelona, Thursday, also yesterday, another attack. In, in Spain, uh, worries us, and it brings sadness and, and uh, fear. Uh, what happened last weekend in Charlottesville, in the States, and the tragic death, death of a young demonstrator, demonstrating on the, on the right side, I think. Um, Heather Heyer was her name and um, also the failure of the President of the United States to actually say something about the disgusting, um, what shall I say, value systems of some of the 
uh, white supremacy, Nazi, fascist people who were demonstrating there, remains of Ku Klux Klan and that kind of thing. And it, it saddens us that we cannot have a clear message about these things. Then there are fires and there are floodings and there are, uh, and then there are <coughs> earth, what's the word, slides. Um, and I'd like to come back to that later in my sermon today. Um, but I'd like to start something somewhere very different. And I'm taking a little risk today. Because I, what I say will demand something of you. Because it will be... I try to tell you a principle of how to read the Bible in my first half. And then I'll make some application of the text uh, for my latter part. So, uh, you know, if you are ready for that, please turn, off your, turn on your attention. If you don't want it, you can play on your phone. And... Uh, but you might waste your time, I think. But let's see. <laughs> yes. Um, so um, let me start with some more recent, something more recent uh, than the Bible, just to bring you into the line of thought. In, um, and I should give credit to our, our writer today, because a lot of what I'm saying in the first half of my sermon is from a person... Uh, Richard Hayes is his name, has written a book called Echoes of Scriptures in the Gospels. So just to make that right. <laughs> um, in 2008, when it became clear when Barack Obama had won the election, these were in the days when the United States, States had a president, and um, um, and uh, he had a, a, a kind of victory speech briefly after that. And he said something. Uh, I will just pick some sentences out of, of context. Um, but he declared to his hearers um, that they should put their hands, and as he said it, on the arc of history and bend it once more towards the hope of a better day. These are the things presidents say. Um, to put their hands on the arc of history and bend it once more to the hope of a better day. And everybody who heard that, they will understand kind of what, where he was going with that. But... The person who knew American history and had a little longer uh, uh, history in their mind would recognize these words that they had been spoken before. They were spoken by the civil rights movement leader Martin Luther King, who said, There are the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Almost, he's using the same words, and when uh, uh, President Obama, not president yet, said these words, there was an echo of the civil rights movement and the leader of the leadership of Martin Luther King. And when people heard the, the words about the arch, arc of history and bend it, this whole uh, civil rights movement thing resonated in their heads. Um, I'll stay with this a little longer, because Obama also stated this. 
we might not get there in one year or even one term. But America, I promise you, we as a people will get there. Where? Where? And again, well, you, you kind of get nowhere he's going with his statement. But if you again knew the history of the American people, you would recognize again Martin Luther King's words as he spoke uh, on that last day before that tragic incident where he was killed in um, Memphis in 1968, where he said, and he was returning from Oslo, my hometown, uh, returning from Oslo, having received the Nobel Peace Prize, where he said, I have been on the mountaintop, right? So he said also to his people, I have seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. And um, Obama, echoing these words, I promise you, we as a people will get there. But there is a story further back than Martin Luther King. Where does the words come from in Martin Luther King's sermon when he says, I have been on the mountaintop, I have seen the promised land, I may not get there with you. What was he talking about? Moses, of course. He was referring and he compared himself, you know, in a humble way to that experience. There is justice ahead. Victories will be won. I might not get with her. And then he stated very clearly in this sermon, you know, that he was living under the threat of his life all the time. So the person listening to Obama's sermon is a speech there in 2008. They could hear it and they could get it from what he said. Or they knew the history from Martin Luther King. And then the picture would be bigger. Or they could know the biblical story behind the statement. And then the picture would be even more meaningful. This is what I'm going to talk about. How we read the scriptures today. Um, And I'm starting with a very strange text. Strange is not strange. But it's... um, It's a text that many people find quite uh, difficult to read and understand, and it's in Matthew 16. Um, And um, it reads like this. Uh, Jesus has just explained some basic Christian principles about picking up their cross and, and, you know, not um, try to gain the whole world and then you lose your soul and this kind of thing. And then he says at the end of the chapter, chapter 16 in Matthew Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And when you read that text, you say, what? You know, see the Son of God, man coming in his kingdom. If that means Jesus coming back, how could he say that some people who were standing there that very day, they're going to see him coming back? They're all dead. So how do we understand this text? Well, we will try to find out. <laughs> Before I try to give any kind of hint to solution, let's also read something Jesus said, almost the same words in a different context. And that usually helps. Um, we go to Matthew 26, where Jesus has been arrested and he is during the night brought before the 
the chief priest. And um, we, if we go towards um, the latter part of the chapter, we can look at verse 63. In the middle of this conversation, it says that Jesus remained silent, even if there were many people accusing him. And then the high priest said to him, I charge you in the oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And he wanted to have this statement from Jesus so that he could um, get rid of him. And then Jesus answers, you have said so. Jesus replied, but then it comes again, the same expression. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. And uh, the reaction we read in the verses that follow is that the high priest tore his clothes, which he shouldn't do, and he said, he has spoken blasphemy. And then he said, what do you think we should do? And, and the people said, he is worthy of death. And then you have the mob and the lynch atmosphere that led to Jesus' crucifixion. But um, to understand this text, or these two texts, we should go to where the echo comes from. What was said before that brings deeper meaning to this text? And the story is in the, in the book of Daniel. That's where the expression, the son of man, appears for the first time. And in chapter 7, that's quite complicated, so I'm not going into that right now. But you have four beasts that are all destroyed by God, brought down. They all fight against God's people. And here, in the middle of that, you see something happening in heaven. 7 and verse 11. In the, in the verses before, you have um, a description of God sitting on the throne with uh, all the glory and beauty of that and thousands serving him. And verse 11 says, Then I continue to watch because of the boastful, boastful words uh, the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Uh, the other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. And then, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. These are the exact words that Jesus are using about himself, isn't it? You will see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Um, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and nations and peoples and of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 
So when Jesus said this to him, when Jesus said, the time will come, you will not die before this is going to happen, where the Son of God on the clouds of heaven will come before the throne of God. It's not talking about the second coming. Most people who read this think it is about the second coming. But when you read the original text in the Old Testament, it's not about that. It is Christ coming before God and receiving power and authority. And this corresponds with so many other texts in, in the scriptures, like the one we had for our scripture reading. How the lamb that was slain is coming in its ascension, coming up before God. And, and, the, and the, the heavens sing his praises because he has won victory. And he's worthy. And he's worthy of all power and glory. So this is what the text means. You will not die before I ascend and receive what Daniel is describing here. And this is what he says to the high priest. And that's why the high priest gets so furious. What on earth do you think you are? You're comparing yourself to this, to this being, divine being coming to the throne of God. Can I read um, just uh, a couple of texts more from, from the New Testament? Because uh, just to, to settle this in. The first martyr of the, of, the early, of the Christian church, of the early church, Stephen, says something again very, very similar. In, um, in uh, Acts 7, you can read his long sermon. I want, this is a, one of the longest sermons in the New Testament. And it, he ends up by saying to people, you know, you really missed it. You lost your chance. You, you couldn't understand what was going on. When God has been doing so much among you and you still didn't understand it, receive it, or accept it, and that will be to your judgment. And this fury is racing up against him and they, they want to lynch him, stone him. Um, so from 54... When the mem verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and, and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Again, right out of Daniel 7. This is the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy. And, um, and uh, if you want to go home and do some more study on this, just check on Son of Man and you will find text after text where Jesus says to one person after the other, Nathanael, he said, you are surprised that I saw you under the tree and you said, you know, are you, that's kind of uh, exciting you. Well, just wait, because you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the head, you know, going on the, the clouds of heaven before God. He says the same thing to Nicodemus. I, if I tell you about these earthly things, how can you think of, uh, and even understand when you will see the Son of Man in his glory and so forth? And it's more and on and on. And I can't give you all that now. Basically, I'm saying to you now, um, that's interesting to interpret that particular text, but um, the New Testament is full of Old Testament. And this has been a debate among scholars, and we don't know, need to go there. Just to say, 
say very briefly, once there was a, a tendency to say, you know, the New Testament is in a new time, the Old Testament was written much earlier, now we have the Roman Empire, the Greek influence of the philosophers and all that, so the New Testament must be read as a more uh, philosophical and Greek-inspired thing. This is out. More and more theologians are coming back and saying, no, the New Testament is written by Jews and it's thoroughly Jewish and Hebrew in his thought. And therefore, the concepts of the New Testament must be understood on the background of the Old Testament. And so many, uh, so many aspects then of what we think about and what we believe is, has to be formed by reading the background. Now I've given you the principle. Um, just take another example. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I think most people just reading that will know there's something sweet, comforting, safe about the fact that Jesus is the good shepherd, right? It lies there in the concept. But, you know, we can just read the text and then bring our, our own ideas into it. I, for example, I, um, I was in Wales some years back, my wife and I, we were sitting on those beautiful green slopes, very soft, you know, I come from Norway, we had these very rocky mountains, very steep hills, and uh, it's tough and it's unfriendly, and you have whales with its beauty uh, and the greenness. So we were sitting up on the slope and we could look down into the valley and up on the other side, and uh, while we were sitting there very quiet and peacefully, suddenly somebody started shouting down in the valley. It was, I couldn't understand a word of it, because, but um, there was this, this very aggressive shouting. I said, is somebody beating up his wife or something? Or is, uh, is, it, uh, is somebody you know, abusing their kids? Or if not physically, verbally, it was horrible to look at it, to hear it. And I said to my wife, you know, do should we go down there or something? Or, you know, and, uh, and, but then they were on the other side of the valley, probably two miles away. We saw this tiny little black dot and many white dots. And now you know what I'm talking about. It was a sheepdog. And he, the sheepdog was guiding the sheep in a certain direction. And the voice we heard was the shepherd guiding the dog, shouting at the dog. And it wasn't unfriendly. It was just the way he had to shout to get his dog to hear what he was doing. And uh, so, you know, when we say Jesus is the good shepherd, is that a good uh, model? Is that a good, you know, Jesus, he sends his dogs out, you know, chasing us around? Where, where does the concept uh, of, of Jesus, uh, when he says, I'm the good shepherd, where does it come from? And what do we think about? Pardon? That's a good start. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. But we tend to bring this message of the good shepherd to us as a, individually. And say, you know, I have a care, caring, loving savior who wants the best for me. And that is not wrong. But when you read, particularly 
the one text that sort of stays with the subject of, of um, shepherd for a long time, then the message is slightly different, and that's Ezekiel 34. And um, I don't think I will go there for a, for a long time this, because I'm just illustrating my point here. But in here, um, adding to your suggestion, I think uh, Psalm 23 is very good. But um, in Ezekiel 34, the prophet, on the behalf of God, says, and uh, you can, it's particularly from um, verse 5 and onwards, that those who should be the shepherds of my people are poor leaders. They are neglecting their duties, and they are like unfaithful shepherds who would rather slaughter and eat the animals than to take care of them. So what does he say? He says, first of all, I will shepherd my people. That means I will be the king of Israel. I will lead my people. Then he says further down into the text, and he goes all the way to verse 23, he says, I will send I will send a new shepherd, and he will lead my people. I'm just paraphrasing. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he doesn't say so only, you know, if you come to me, I'll take care of you. No, he says, I am he. I am the person that God promised through the prophets that he would send to lead his people. That's me. Is more grand than just the word in itself can indicate. And so we can go through concept after concept in the scriptures. We can look at the, the, the um, parable where Jesus taught of the owner of a vineyard who sent people so they could get the profits. Where does that come from? You know, it's from Isaiah 5. And you, and you understand, and the concept expands and grows because you read what the prophet said and suddenly Jesus is not only talking about um, something very personal but he's talking about his own nation what is the kingdom of God what did they you know and so forth uh, maybe I should stop there Jesus and the fig tree do you remember that Jesus cursed the fig tree does it make sense to anybody well if you read the Old Testament it does because it, it, it echoes something that God says about the, the trees that are not bearing fruit and so forth and so forth and so on I can stop I will stop there with, with the biblical principles what I'm really saying so far I encourage you read your Old Testament too and if you can't really make sense of something in the New Testament, maybe you can use a concordance. It's online. You can search for words and you can find key texts that will bring, bring meaning into something that might be quite obvious, but it will be expanded just as Obama's sermon had a different meaning when he took it back to King and to Exodus. Right? Okay. Then I'd like to say for the, the second part here something about um, the fact that Jesus is now on the throne, that Jesus is Lord. We usually take this very personally. Guys, something is happening to religion in this country that is not healthy for us. And um, religion is being put into 
private, this private sphere and it's taken out of the public room. Are you with me? Where the, we have this all over the Western world. Religious symbols should be removed from TV screens. Worship and discussions of religion are taken out of the schedules in TV and radio and other forums, right? Newspapers are not having discussions on things that have relates to church and theology. Uh, and uh, when in government, um, uh, different government functions, there used to be priests, bishops included, and this is more and more coming to the side. And um, and something that happens to us as a church, and I'm not talking about the Adventist church and you people here, I'm talking about Christianity, is that we are falling into that trap and we are saying religion is about my life, it's a private thing, my spirituality, me and God. That is not correct. Religion is not only about me and God. The biblical religion is about how God wants to change the world. Yeah. That's what Jesus was going, wanted him to do. I can come back to that. I'm not saying the other thing is wrong. But the very simple evangelical message that is not true to the biblical message of salvation is something like this. You are a sinner. Yeah, yeah. We are sinners. It's not wrong. It's true. We need forgiveness. Yes, it's true. Christ died for us on the cross to forgive our sins, pay, pay the price. It's true. If you believe in him uh, and ask for forgiveness, you, you can go to heaven. Yeah, I believe that. It's true. And so it's all happy clappy. This is an amputated message. And it's not a message about Jesus who has become Lord of the world sitting on the right hand side on the throne of God. So that's what I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes. And that's a big one. And I'm not, maybe I'm not doing justice, justice to it just in a few minutes. Um, if Jesus was king, well, he is. But if people accepted him as king, we would not have a Charlotteville and we would not have a Barcelona. That is the truth. Because when Jesus is king, people follow their king. So, it is not only about me or you. It is about our society and it's about the world. There are so many sad interpretations and so many sad expressions of religion and so many sad pictures of God, both the people who did Barcelona and Manchester and Westminster and Paris and Nice and Brussels, Brussels? Sorry? I'm not always there. Um, these people are religious people with a distorted view of God. 
And I, I'm not saying anything against Muslims here at all. Most Muslims have a balanced and, uh, and a good way to relate to other people, extremists. But some of their ideology is uh, ignited by a misunderstanding of the nature of God. The people who march in um, Charlottesville, the white supremacists, the Nazis, the neo-Nazis, um, the Cuckoo's clan, well, some of these people bring God into the picture, and they have a distorted picture of God. But if Jesus was their king, and they actually learned what Jesus said, they would have a different picture of God and of their own lives. And this is what Jesus talks about when he says, go into the whole world and make everyone a disciple. That is the purpose. Jesus, and what, what is it to be a disciple? It is not only to say, now I believe in Jesus so I can go to heaven. No, it isn't. Disciples of Jesus live different lives. They're not perfect. I don't, I'm not saying talk about that. They just change the world. They just change the world. Because they have a new agenda. And it comes from the king. When Jesus is king, things are different in the world. And I believe Jesus, yes, he was not denying, and I am not denying, and I'm not trying to say anything against that. There is a new earth coming. There is a recreation. There is a coming at an ultimate day where God will restore everything. But in the meantime, we are building the kingdom of God on this world, in this world. The kingdom of God is not only something that is coming. The kingdom of God is everywhere where God rules. And that is in people's lives. Let me read a couple of texts in the, for you, maybe with this in mind. Well, I always already hinted at uh, the Great Commission. But let me, that's the last verses of Matthew, Matthew's Gospel. Try to think for a second. I'm sorry if I'm teaching you more than I'm preaching today, but I hope you're with me. I, I look at your faces, you're with me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, um, try to put yourself in the shoes of the disciples who had seen Jesus rise from the dead. I mean, there were many messiahs in those time periods where Jesus lived, and they all died and they all disappeared. And when they saw they, they put faith in Jesus from Nazareth, and they saw him dying on the cross. The carpet went down for many of them. I said, okay, this was another one, and uh, it's over. It's over. The very fact that the church and the, and the New Testament exist bears witness to the fact that these people were shocked to see and surprised to see that their so-called Messiah was the Messiah, and he rose from the dead. And what kind of question did they ask themselves then? What are the consequences of the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and not only for Israel but for the world as he had taught them and as the prophet had, prophets had said before? What did they think? Let me make a comparison. Have you seen the pictures? Should I be here? Uh, have you seen the pictures of... Uh, the Berlin Wall when it failed and the people crawling up on the wall and waving banners? Who have seen that? Who has seen those pictures? I mean, you can't avoid it. You're not living on this planet if you haven't seen the pictures, right? So, these people waving these banners and jumping over on the other side and starting to hack on this 
wall with whatever they had. What were they saying when they said that? What were they saying? Now I can go into West Berlin. Well, they probably said that too. But was that the meaning of the event? What was the meaning of the event? That I can walk across a border? No. The meaning of this event is huge. It means a whole political order is collapsing. It means that a new era has come into being for my whole nation. It means that everything will be different from this day on for me and for everybody else. Are you with me? So when something so dramatic happens, it doesn't only happen about, uh, it's not only about you, it's about the world. The world is a different place after 1989. That's where they were waving their banners. And so the disciples, when they saw Jesus rose from the dead, they didn't say, oh, then I can get to heaven. No. Then they understood. This good news about the kingdom of God must be brought to everybody. Because when Christ is the ruler, everything will be different from now on. This will change the world. We are part of a movement that is the world has never seen before. Something new has happened where the promises of God are now being fulfilled. So when Jesus then says to them as his very last word, according, words according to Matthew, he says, um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We usually skip that very quickly. Because you don't really get it. Because you can't see it. Does Christ have all authority? No, there are so many things happening that he doesn't have authority over and we have our own governments. But he is the, um, he is the person that has been given this authority by God. He is the rightful leader of every person on this planet. He has been given authority. He is the one sitting at the right hand of God. And all authority has been given me, he says. And they see to preach the gospel of the kingdom is about that. That every person will see Jesus Christ as their Lord. Second out of the two. Also, as Luke concludes his gospel, a text we tend to read in a very personal way. But I challenge that. Luke 24, 45-49. <clears throat> Again, some of the last words from Jesus. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. That's what we are talking about today too. Verse 45, Luke 24 and 45. And um, he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in the, his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with the power from on high. And what I'd like to focus on is this sentence, what is going to happen when his, his gospel is preached, 47. 
and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. And immediately, as we have been trained, we think, what does that, is that about me? So they will preach forgiveness for my sins um, so that I can get forgiveness so I can get to heaven. Isn't that the first thought that comes to our mind so easily? Well, again, it's not about you. It's not about me. Okay, forgive me. It's about you too, and for me too. But it's more, that's what I'm trying to say, it's more. If Jesus is king, repentance will happen in the nations. If Jesus is king, forgiveness will happen in the nations. And that will change the world. Can you see that from a different perspective? Like, maybe as an example, South Africa, Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela. What do they call it? Uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Bringing people forward who have been sinners or criminals to confess what they had done wrong and to have and encourage forgiveness in their society. Not everything was perfect after that. I know that. But big things happened that could not have happened without the gospel. This is what happens in a nation when people have Jesus as king. So, Jesus had a message to change the world. Well, I think I have um, I, I brought a point or two home. And I think I will try to conclude here. Do you see Jesus at the right hand of God? He is Lord Do you, but then do you see yourself as a part of a new world order? The church has a place in this world order. And we are not only here to, to teach people to think right about certain doctrines. We are agents to change the world. And you must remember that, and I must remember that. That's, that's the purpose of the church. It's a new way to think about things. When you read the scriptures, try to trace the concepts and try to see how it goes beyond yourself. Okay. It's up to you to think further about this. Thank you for listening so well. And thank you for the time. Amen. Let me read a greeting from Paul as he writes the, the Thessalonians. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Amen. Amen.